Amen. I, I want to I thank you for the many of you uh, who participated in this week of prayer. And for many of you who couldn't physically be here, I want you to know um, I'm confident. Oh, it's all fine. Confident you were praying where, where God had you. I was gone for some of this week and was praying alongside you, my brothers and sisters from a different part of the country. Uh, it was a powerful week. Um, I was here for, for half of the week. And last night, a very overwhelming moment for me um, was uh, for those of you who were here when you laid hands on me and prayed for me. I'm, I'm grateful. Um, and, and I don't quite know, you know, what all this means, but I know this, that God is alive and well in this world. He is alive and well in this church. And I truly do believe, as many of you believe, uh, that God is doing something new among us. I want to be uh, publicly thankful and grateful for Pastor Matthew John, uh, for his ministry to us through the preaching last week. Yes. And for his leadership and vision for this, this week of prayer. It was a marvelous week. He is a gift to us as a congregation. And if you have not interacted with him personally, as you will one day, you'll know that for such a time as this, God has brought Matthew to us, and it's amazing. I want to also let you know that next week, uh, in our pulpit, all three services, is a, a, a new friend of mine, will be a new friend to Lake Avenue Church, Dr. Amos Young. I will be here, I'll be in all the services, but as we put this series together, it was really clear that the this one particular text that Dr. Young might be most helpful for us. He is the newly appointed. He's got quite a job. You think I got a job. This guy is the dean of both the School of Theology and the dean of the School of Intercultural Studies at Fuller. And he is an amazing man. Friend of Matthew's, actually. Pentecostal background. Some of you are thrilled when I just said that. Others of you are scared to death, but you're going to be here next week. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. I also want to let you know after the service, we have a week of prayer, and, and that should lead us to action in many, many ways. And one thing you will notice in your worship folder, and, and please do after the service, if there are any kids left uh, at our Christmas tree out in the lobby, our Project Angel tree, these are gifts that we give on behalf of parents who are incarcerated to children who will have Christmas without mom or dad. And more so than just buying a present and bringing it to the church, we have a deep commitment as a church to, to not just those children, but to this, the idea of the prisoner. We think the scripture calls us to that very clearly. And so leverage the opportunity, Lake Avenue Church, not just to buy a present for a child, uh, but to enter into this commitment as a church we have towards those in the justice system, those who are incarcerated. May it change your prayer life. There's literature. So even if you don't pick up a child, I do encourage you to pick up a pamphlet we have there that speaks more detailed about how we are committed as a congregation and the issues that are connected to all of that. And what does it mean to, to be a church, to be the church of Jesus Christ is this very big reality of, of the United States of America. All right, shall we jump in? Acts chapter 4, that's not the text, but you'll remember this scripture. All the believers were in one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. Now, I, I think you would agree with me that this is one healthy church. This is a group of people who leave church feeling very loved and a part of something 
You don't really pick up in Acts chapter 4 in the verses we've just read that there's, there's a lot of drama in the church. We don't get a sense quite yet that, that church has been a difficult experience for them in terms of their relationships with one another. But let me ask a question, and I'll ask you to be vulnerable with one another if you would. If you've ever experienced pain or hurt or anything negative as being a part of the church, would you just raise your hand? For those of you who aren't raising your hand, you're lying, and now I've caused you a painful experience. Now you can raise your hand. I mean, Acts chapter 4, it's this idyllic and beautiful call, and we had a whole, we had a whole sermon around that, and there's deep truth in there. There's a this is us-ness to this scripture, or this should be us. But the reality is, by the time we get two chapters later, this idyllic picture of this church where there were no needy persons among them, the story starts to change. All of a sudden, we start figuring out that this church, this church in Jerusalem has got issues. That there's issues that are a part of being the church, and our hands being raised demonstrates the reality of that. I want you to look at your neighbor. I'll tell you why there are issues in the church. Look at your neighbor and say, neighbor, you have issues. <laughs> and I'll say back to them, you've got them too. The reason there are issues in a church is because we are a family, and in any family, there are issues. And the reason there are issues is because I got issues. I, there's this song that I, I love the chorus of. It's, I can't endorse the whole song, but it's by Julia Michaels, and it says, I put the lyrics up, I've got issues. You've got them too. So give them all to me, and I'll give mine to you. Bask in the glory of all our problems because we've got the kind of love it takes to solve them. I mean, there's just something so true about the context of that, for, especially for a relationship of, of, of love. That somehow my issues and your issues, they merge back up together. And, and if we can just acknowledge the reality that there's issues, we have some hope. But the problem for us in the world we live in is that we have a tough time acknowledging that having issues, even issues in the church, is normal. The picture that we're motivated to live by is that it's actually quite possible through enough uh, help and enough skills and enough therapy and enough all these things, enough prayer, we spiritualize these things, that somehow we'll get to a point where maybe we don't have the issues anymore. And I don't think that's true. I don't think that's quite possible. And I don't even think that the text today will, will give that to us. Because at the end of the day, we're human beings and we have issues. It's not, it's not the goal to not have issues. It's the goal to deal with our issues in a healthy way, in a biblical way, in a way that acknowledges the issues among us, but finds a way through the gospel and through the teachings of the scripture and through health to kind of work through those issues, and that's the text we have today. Now, we've already been in one particular story where the church in Jerusalem has their first issue. It's around Ananias and Sapphira, and you remember that that issue that the church has is the same issue we have. It's an issue of sin. That's always going to be an issue for the people of God, and in that particular story, the sin was the dishonesty within the church. It was the disobedience to God, and, and when sin enters the church, it needs to be dealt with, it needs to be acknowledged, and it, it seeks to destroy, it seeks to divide. Now, not all the issues in the church are connected to sin. Some of the issues connected to being a church family have to do with growth. 
You know, for the church of Jerusalem in, in Acts chapter 1, it's 120 people. It's really, it's really quite easier to know what's going on with 120 people than the probably 15 to 20,000 people that Acts chapter 6 has as a part of this new movement. So as the church grows, the issues become clear. So as at one point where no one had a need among them, maybe everybody, everybody's name was known. Their particular story was known. And this church is growing at a rapid rate. And it's growing at such a rapid rate that in Acts chapter 6, we have a different kind of family issue that I would say is an issue. Yes, there's some sin in the issue, but, but it's really an issue of, of growth. Something that happens when a family expands and it grows. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word, Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith of the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, this is a very straightforward text. The story as it presents reads really well. We can see the problem, we can see the solution, but, but we've got to dig in a little bit. We've got to do some work today because we don't live in first century Jerusalem. We don't have the same kind of family issues literally as they did. And so we have to understand, what is God communicating here that not only describes what's happening in this moment in the history of the church, but might prescribe to us what it means for us today? I want to start out before we jump in. I want you to notice how this, this section of scripture, it's called a pericope, how it, is, how it starts and how it ends. It's, it's very interesting to me. Verse 1, in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, church is growing. In many other parts in the book of Acts, we get numbers about that. We don't know how much that increase is here, but the context for this issue, the context of this problem within the church, is in the context of, it, of the church growing. Remember I said some of the issues that happen in a family and in our church, in a church family, are a result of growth? That's the context. Church is growing. Then we get the issue, we get how they solve the issue, and then here's how that pericope ends. So the word of God spread, verse 7. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So what bookends this family issue is the church is growing, they deal with the issue, and we find out that the church keeps growing. So that should signal to you and me, what, what is going on in this story? There's something that happens in this story that the church deals with the issue in such a way that it seems 
that God honors the way they handled this, that they were in a place of favor, the church is growing, there's an issue that arises, and they deal with it in such a way that we read at the end of this story that the church continues to grow. I think it's important for a couple of reasons to note these verse 1 and verse 7. One, they don't minimize the issue. They're dealing with the issue. There's something about dealing with the issue that God honors. The church is growing, an issue arises, it's dealt with, and so it causes for me curiosity. The best way we can dig into this story is just a verse or two at a time. That's what we're going to do, and then at the end I'll give you some application. First, look at verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Okay, remember what I've just said. When Acts began, began uh, about 120 people. Now we're up at probably 15, 20,000 people. In any movement, any organization, any growth in your own company, in your own family, you know that the more people that get added, there's new problems that arise. We were with friends last night who right now have one grandchild, and in the next three months they will have three grandchildren. Christmas is going to start looking different. It gets a little more complicated. The way our family used to relate is different when we add more people to it, and that's part of the context of this. So we find out that this family is growing specifically with Jewish people from different cultures within Judaism the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. Hellenistics are the Greek-speaking believers, the Greek believers that are complaining that the Hebrew widows are receiving special treatment. The Greek widows are being neglected. Now, just to be clear, the surface-level problem that this story presents is about food, but the real problem in this story is about prejudice. You've got two culturally different groups of people, both now in a church together. And again, the surface issue is that one of them's getting slighted at mealtime, while the others are getting treated more favorably. It's an issue of cultural prejudice because that prejudice between these two communities existed before they came into the church. Now that they've met Jesus, they've been baptized in the name of Jesus, they find themselves in this community together and the issues that were previously there around culture have now found their way within this new community. Hellenists, Greek-speaking Jews were people who were completely offensive to Hebrew Jews. They, had, they dressed like Greeks. They were all in with Greek language and Greek polit politics. And the Hebraic Jews would have found these Hellenistic Jews and seen them as traitors. And surely Jesus hasn't totally redeemed all these things they're about yet because they kind of got to be more like us. This is going to be a bigger and bigger issue as the book of Acts continues. In fact, this is just within the church of Jerusalem. This is in that calling of, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Now, when that church starts expanding to Judea and Samaria, these problems are only going to get more and more. As people from different cultures come together under the name of Jesus, how do we do family? What is the issue there? So there's a cultural reality to this story. Hellenistic, Hebraic. Two cultures, now with Jesus, problem. But it's also really important that we understand why, why, are, why is it the widows? What is it about making the central part of this lesson, this family issue, around the widows? And I think it's really another thing we start seeing in Acts starting now and progressing through the New Testament. 
a big question for this group of people. Okay, so Jesus has come, and we're now with this new church, and the Holy Spirit is upon us, and we've got all this Old Testament. We have all this Old Covenant that has very specific parts to it about what it means to be a faithful follower of God. And the question that's going to start being raised over and over again is, how much of this thing still applies? Every service, Lynn, sorry. (laughs) How much of this Old Covenant still applies? What do we need to keep doing because of Jesus? What are we going to stop doing? I mean, do we, do we still obey the law? I mean, do we still have to do all these specifics around worship? Like, what is it we're supposed to keep doing? This is going to be a persistent question for this new church. What from the old carries over to the new? And what we're going to see in the book of Acts is a lot of things get to stop. Specifically, diet and surgery get to stop. That some of these Levitical dietary laws, they come and discern, they go, those things don't really quite apply anymore. And then surgery around circumcision and that, what that mark was in the Old Testament. And they're going to they're gonna have a big council over this. How Jewish does someone need to be to be a follower of Jesus? And they make some decisions. We're going to spend time in that text. So when the widow is the illustration or the subject of this text, it's actually declaring, I believe, of something that's not going to change. And what's not going to change is that from the very beginning of the scripture and throughout the entire scripture, you cannot read the Bible and see that God has a specific call on his people to care for the socially and the economically vulnerable in society. It's throughout the whole Bible. It's established with the people of God. It's, it's, the people of God are judged in the prophets for not living that way. It shows up in the teachings of Jesus. And now in his apostles, they are very aware. And so when a widow is having a problem, it signals to the apostles, uh, this isn't just a social issue. This is a heart of God issue. And we better get on this. Because they know God, and they know God that there's four groups of people that are redundantly talked about in the Bible. The widow, the orphan, the stranger, and the poor. The widow, the orphan, the stranger, the sojourner, the migrant, the immigrant, and the poor. These four groups of people are are, are the very heart of God for his people to care for, to defend, to provide for. And so the first one, the first family issues in the church isn't just one of culture, it's one of priority too. And so the apostles, by taking this complaint seriously and caring for the widow, is them saying this one continues. This same heart of God continues. There is a social reality to following Jesus. Responsibility of the people of God to have the heart of God which takes us to protective and radical and redemptive ways to care and advocate for the socially and economically vulnerable among us. That's just part of the Bible. I know that in the world we live in, that feels like political conversation. It's actually biblical conversation. 
The problem for you and for me is that I think what, what is over our Bible sometimes are the newspapers we read or our iPad with our news feed is that we, we primarily understand an issue through a political reality before we've opened up the Word of God to understand it from a biblical reality. So I know that the world around us wants to make these kinds of commitments to these groups of people a political issue, but, but frankly, it's a biblical issue. So at the very least, at the very, very least, for the followers of Jesus, I would argue that issues of children who are orphans and for, for, for children who are migrants or immigrants who come to the border of this country unaccompanied, that's not a political issue primarily for us people. That is a biblical issue for us. And it says that these children meet two of the four criteria that God's heart talks about over and over and over again. And so you've noticed in your worship folder that we have partnered with a ministry through Urban Strategies called Refugio and us and other churches. We've been, Pasadena area has been selected to be a place for these unaccompanied minors to get their start. And there are families, many families in this congregation going through the fostering process so that these children can be with them. And I applaud them and say, you're living the commitments of God. But it's not a political issue. It's a biblical issue. So we have a cultural conflict, a social conflict. And both conflicts find their way within the church. Both of these conflicts Jesus speaks about. Both of these conflicts, the apostles who sat under Jesus' teaching, now empowered by the Holy Spirit, say this is a big one. We need to dedicate this to the record in Acts. We need to capture what's happening here in the early days of our family. Verse 2, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Now I'll admit to you, when I read that, it feels a little harsh. It feels like the apostles are saying, we're doing the really important stuff, and we don't have time to wait on this. We don't need to deal with this drama with the widows. Whatever that food stuff is. No, no, we're, we're, we're preaching. It's actually not what's happening at all. They're not minimizing. They're just really clear on their particular role within this new movement of God. And as the church is growing, so does the way the church is organized needs to grow and change. As a church grows and changes, its structures must grow and change as new problems arise. And there's something in, this, in these very few verses that are going to start being built upon in the rest of the book of Acts, built upon in the rest of the New Testament, where ultimately what we're going to see is that the way this community works is that people are given gifts that the body of Christ has fingers and toes and arms and noses and, and it's the people together who do the work of the ministry. It's no longer just about the, the super pastor or the priest. And the apostles in this moment have the wisdom to see that we've got a new problem among us. I need to stay what God's called me to do. We need to empower some other people to deal with this. It's not a minimizing the clarity of roles at this point in the church is the ministry of the word. The next verse will say there's a ministry of prayer and welcome to the scripture that launches for us the ministry of service. So verse 2 does not dismiss the issue that the widows are having. It takes it so seriously that the church expands and begins to see a new way that this community of faith will fulfill God's mission because it's not just 
Following Jesus is a message to proclaim, yes. It is a gospel to preach, yes. But it's a family to join as well. And while some are gifted to do the preaching and proclaiming, there's a lot of us who are gifted to be that family and to care for one another. Verses 3 and 4. Brothers and sisters, here's their solution. Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we'll turn this responsibility over to them, and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. So as a response to the growing needs of the church, they select members of the church who love God, sensitive to God's leading, full of character, wise, and they delegate responsibility to them to solve the problem. Church is changing for them from a, from a spectator sport where you would come to the temple and watch the priest do the priestly things. And it's becoming a team sport. It's becoming a, a team where, where we got different plays and different roles and different things. And it's important to note that what's not happening in this text, now it will happen in the text, but they are not creating a formal church structure yet. They don't use the word diaconate. These are not people who become the deacons of the church. Can't use this text for that. They're assigned to fix a problem. They are assigned to a job, not an office, not a structure. And while there's a structural reality to the solution, the point of the text is to meet the need of the widows, to solve the cultural problem. to advance the heart of God for this particular group of people who are vulnerable. It's strategic how they go about choosing these people. So the proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose seven people. Stephen, I'm not going to butcher the names again. You can read them on your own. They presented these seven to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, here's what you need to see in this. This is why we don't, we don't, we're not part of like Hebraic and Greek culture, but all seven names here are Greek names. Now, remember who's upset. It's the Greek widows who are upset. Now, if the Greek widows thought they were being mistreated by the Hebrews, and the solve of the problem was to give the responsibility to a bunch of Hebrews, I'm not quite sure that the Greek widows would have found this to be satisfactory. If the cultural bias, if the prejudice is already there, what happens in this text is incredibly wise. Both Hebrews and Greeks were part of the solution. The answer is never just to separate from people who are different from you. But they gave the authority for the solution to the Greeks. See, they chose leaders who represented the concerns and needs of the people. It's incredibly wise and it's incredibly strategic to best address the needs of a group of people, we must have people from that group to help us know how to address the needs. I was at school this week and I was in class with a pastor friend who's a friend now, didn't know him before the class, and he's a, he's a pastor of an immigrant congregation somewhere in Chicago. Specifically, he's from Miramar. And about 10 years ago, 400 refugees from Miramar descended on this particular city in the suburbs of Chicago and when they came, there was this well-intentioned group of churches who was preparing for them. And so before they even arrived, this group of churches came together and started anticipating 
what this group of people would need and started preparing for them to welcome them. And he said very humbly, it's 10 years ago, we had all the jackets we needed. And he said, let me tell you about my life right now with the Church of 200. I have the ministry of the word, I preach it every week, but I also have the ministry of service because I'm the only one in my congregation to this day who actually can speak English in a way that would help, say, a parishioner buy a car. And so when I have a parishioner need to purchase a major purchase, I get called, set up the appointment, and meet them at the car dealership to buy the car. Or one of my congregants, their child has a parent conference or is in trouble at the school, I get the call, I've got to go sit in that building and, re- and be the translator between the family and the school. When my parishioners have a problem uh, in their community and they need to call the police, they don't quite know how to do that and then their background doesn't trust police, so I've got to speak to them at three in the morning and talk them through and I'm just listening to this man talk about his job and, and I, I just said, this is a real pastor. This is a pastor, it's not about a noun for him, it's about a verb, he's a pastor, he pastors. And I couldn't help but think, I wonder what it could have been like if those churches, those well-intentioned churches, very early on invited him into the solution process. Said, we want to meet the needs of your, this refugee community. Help us know what we need to know. And maybe he would have said, you know, it would be great. Could you select, I don't know, seven people from your churches to learn our language over the next year? so that I can be focused on the ministry of the word with them. I don't have to show up at every meeting at a school or every time a purchase is made. See, brothers and sisters, those of us who are well-intentioned need to understand that the best solution to some of these vulnerable communities is by empowering them to help lead in the solution. But we can't do that without proximity. I think this is an incredibly wise, brilliant move of the early church to say, Greek widows, Greek problem, Greek people, let's help us with this, go. We're going to empower you for the solve. So let's take the note. When social needs and cultural issues arise in the church, we need those closest and most familiar with those needs to lead the effort. They were empowered to solve the issue not investigate the complaint. It's another problem for the world we live in, is that when people share vulnerably what's going on with them, oftentimes it feels like we can empower a, a group of people, a committee, or a subset of, let's, let's see the severity of this complaint. I mean, are they really getting overlooked at the meals? I saw one of them had a, the same portion as everybody else. I mean, it, it's, it's really interesting to think about. A church with cultural issues, a church with a commitment to the vulnerable, there's a problem. They empower that community within and of themselves to be the leader of the solution. They don't dismiss the problem. They delegate to get the problem fixed. And then we see in verse 7 that the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And I believe it seems that what we read here is the Spirit was quite pleased with how they handled this family issue. And as a result, the church keeps growing. And so what on earth would this mean for you and me today and for Lake Avenue Church? There's two major kind of lessons in this text when you study it. 
There's a group that would say what we have here is a, is a teaching that really informs the administrative functions of the church. There's a problem that arises. How did they do the solution? Even the things I've just said, empowering the group of people like this text exists and it really helps us understand how the church might be organized and how to administrate so that we don't have pastors doing everything. People can preach, people can pray, people can serve. And, and so that's that. In fact, it's really interesting to me that any commentary I read on this that was written by a pastor, their major emphasis was, see, pastors should just preach and everybody else can wait on tables. Now, I kind of agree with that, but not to the extent of what I've read. I don't get a pass because I stand here today of caring for people in a tangible, clear way. So there's this administrative application in the text, but then there's this other, what people would argue, the relational realities in here, this cultural, what's happening here, and, and the commitment to the vulnerable, and, and issues of justice, and how does a church organize herself when, when this is happening within the community. And I just want to let you know, I think both have a lot of truth to them. I think there's things we can learn around how we should be organized as a church and what the, what the, what the administrative realities of a congregation looks like. I think the text can inform us of that. But I also think, and I think for us today, I'm much more moved and want to talk very specifically about the relational realities. How does this text inform the way we do family together? Because remember, just look at your neighbor again, they've got issues. And so do you. And we bring all this difference here together. And how might we live among one another? I want to briefly talk about both. I want to talk about the administrative realities and the relational realities. So on the administrative side of things, can, I want you to see a couple of things. I believe this text gives us a missional vision, not a structure. I don't think you can read this text and come up with congregationalism. Even I know it says everybody was pleased with that, and that would suggest at least an 80% positive vote under Robert's rules of order. This is not a church polity verse. This is a church that shows the mission of the church more than it's communicating a structure of the church. And what we can see is the mission of the church has some formality to it so far. Ministry of the word, ministry of prayer, ministry of service. All of these ministries are for the mission of the church, not just to have a cool structure of a church. God isn't building an organization. He is building a movement. And so all of these are required for mission. All of them matter. All of them need attention. This is not a verse that puts one against the other and says, which one's more important? These are verses that affirm the dynamic reality about being the people of God. We preach and we pray and we meet needs. So it's not a structure. It's a mission. And because it's a mission, I think what we have here is a call to servanthood over a call to leadership. The text doesn't use the word diaconate. This is not an office. It's not a formal leadership response. It's more dynamic. It's reactive. We don't like that word reactive, but it's reactive. There's a problem in the church. We're going to react and solve it. And, and, and the point of it isn't to elect seven people and say, I am now the leader. No, the seven people are there to solve a problem. It's about serving. It's about accomplishing the mission through serving, not accomplishing the mission by getting a title. This is a text that shows us that 
the verb serving rather than the noun of pastoring. Servanthood is in the heart of the people of God for the mission of the church. It is so serious. This is so validated in the early church that the leaders of the church, the formal apostles, lay hands on this group of seven and say, for the, for the service you're going to be doing, for the serving of this community you're doing, we are going to anoint you for it. We are going to lay hands on you and commission you to that work. It's not just administrative stuff to get done. It matters. It's huge. And it gives an image of servanthood over than a position of leadership. And what we will see is in this serving of the church, we start to see that everyone has a role to play. Yes, it's the apostles and these seven now, but as this story grows, we're going to find out that we all have spiritual gifts, that we're this body of Christ with different parts. The church becomes this movement of God where everybody has a role to play. It is no longer come watch the pastor. It's come be part of the serving. And together we all play our part to proclaim Jesus to this world. So there's my administrative thoughts for you. It's not a structure, it's a mission. It's not leadership, it's servanthood. And it's everyone involved. It's starting to lay that foundation. But the, the heart for this morning is I think it's really important at the relational realities to see the posture that this group of people had with one another. The posture of this family. We all come from families when the issues arise, there's defaults to posture. Some of you just, you had to have a posture of getting out. It was so unhealthy and dangerous. Or when someone in your family does what they do, put your head down and hope we get through that one, or we can get through Thanksgiving without that. We always have posture in our families, especially when issues arise. I want us to see the posture that happens somewhere between verse 1 and 2. It's not in the text directly, but you can't not see this. Number one, notice the posture of speaking, communicating. Now, I have to admit to you, I, I am a, a person who has lived a, a wonderfully privileged life. I cannot fully relate to what it must have felt like to be someone who is economically and socially vulnerable, like these widows. And what kind of community, what kind of safety, what kind of vulnerability, what kind of beauty exists within this new family where they felt safe to speak up? My guess would be many years and kinds of people in the text and even in the world and even in this church now, if you identify as someone in, in a vulnerable position, the courage and safety that it, that, it, that it must have to speak up about what's happening to you. But they felt safe to speak up. There was a freedom in communicating and sharing. And right now, my guess is that for many of you who raised your hand, your bad experience at church was related somehow to this. Either you spoke up and risked and said, this is who I am or this is what I'm going through and nobody followed through with you. In fact, maybe they didn't follow through with you by meeting your needs. They followed through with you by sharing gossip about you and spreading horrible things about you. It happens all the time in the church. Or your bad experience at church is there was serious stuff happening in your life and you never, you never felt safe to speak up. You never felt safe to share what was happening. And so there was an emptiness to community for you. The posture of this family was one where it was safe to communicate and to speak with what was happening in their lives. 
But it wasn't just a posture of speaking. There was also a posture of listening. Not only was it a community where the widows could speak up, it was a community where the church leadership listened. They heard them. They were present with them. They gave their words power, heard their experience and their pain. And yes, they're going to get to problem solving. But before they problem solved, this was a community in which the leadership listened. And that the barriers in that time of culture and gender and power were down enough that people were actually talking and listening to one another. Jesus had made a difference enough to get the table, to get the issue on the table, and to have it be taken seriously. Posture of speaking and communicating, posture of listening. But beyond that, there was a posture of trusting. This was a church with trust. It doesn't tell us in the text that they had to prove themselves. Their experience was taken at face value. See, speaking and listening without trust is just being polite. That's just part of, I pray, being like a, a, a functional member of society where we can communicate with one another and I can listen to you. Trusting takes it to another level. Listening to somebody's story and their experience and trusting that what they're telling you is valid and that it's true, where it doesn't go through the filter of what goes on in some of our minds. Like, that just can't be true. That's exaggerated. I mean, I know one person who has a different story than you, so it can't be your story. If, if, if listening, if speaking and listening is being polite, trusting is the evidence of actually really being family. And I got to pause for a moment and say this to us as a church, and I say it humbly. Listening and speaking is being polite. Being polite is not the goal of the church of Jesus Christ. However, we ought to at least be polite. And in the days ahead, we have to work on this. Allowing somebody to speak. Listening to them speak. Taking in their story. At minimum, we should be polite. There is no politeness in the culture around us. And so I think one of the ways the enemy is going to work is just make us polite. So the big growth this election year for Lake Avenue Church, we're just going to speak and listen. No, 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 no. There's more here. But at the very least, we should work on being polite with one another. The posture of this family wasn't just speaking and listening, it was trusting. So the question is, are there any widows among us that we're not trusting? Are there any economic or socially vulnerable voices trying to share with the church what's going on with them and we're not listening, we're not trusting them? Maybe we're listening, but we're not trusting them. These are important lessons here for us. This should be a convicting call for you because it is a gut-wrenching convicting call for me. To listen to my brother or sister in this church from another culture, another age, another ethnicity, another economic class, to allow them to speak, to want to know their story, to trust their story, to not just be polite with them, but to be moved by their experience. That's some growth. And that's evidence that is the evidence of whether we can actually have the posture of the early church. 
But again, speaking and listening and trusting, all of this was this final posture of addressing. We get to addressing the the real needs so we can hear the stories that emerge and we can understand them, we can trust them. The goal isn't just to know all these stories. The goal is to actually address the needs that are within the story. And I have to tell you, I dream and long for the day where we are so in tune with the stories of you, of what you're experiencing, of how you might more fully live within this family, that the spiritual leadership of this church is focused on addressing those needs, appointing people to give a solve, and okay, over here, let's get this, let's get this, so we can move to being the kind of church that doesn't just know a bunch of information, And have a bunch of stories out there, but a church that takes all of that to actually address the needs. I've been reading a lot of Ray Ortland these days, which I've come to find out means reading a lot of Ann Ortland. And many of you were here for this Sunday where he said, I refuse to be an ordinary pastor, and I refuse to pastor an ordinary church. And it would be much too arrogant for me to quote his words as my own, but there's something that deeply, deeply resonates with me right now in this quote. Because an ordinary church mimics the culture that's around them and pick up your papers. There's no listening. There's very little empathy. Cultural divides are loud and difficult and painful. The divides of people to people in the world we live in are massive. I think an ordinary church mimics all that right within the walls instead of being an extraordinary community that listens, trusts, and responds. Across social difference, cultural difference, all these things in the world around us are used to divide. And yet there's this other reality that We'd be ordinary if we just have the same dialogue that's happening out there. There's also this reality of like, this is who God is. He's about bringing and bridging people across difference together to demonstrate who he is by the the, the walls, as Greg would say, all the walls that divide people from people, they come down. And when the church fails to be that, what I find very interesting is God is still doing that work out there. It's just not showing up in the places we expect why I can talk to a non-Christian and they'll tell me about a podcast series that they're addicted to and I listen to it and it's soaking in grace and truth of who God is. But, but the goodness of God is recognized through a story in a podcast series, not in the message of the church. So God's going to do what he's going to do. See, I think we have a chance to be extraordinary, not to mimic the culture around us and not to have everybody else have to proclaim the message of Jesus. We can actually do something special here, and we do, and you do. I think God has an extraordinary future for us. It seems to me for us to to own that future God's giving us, it comes down to our posture with one another. To share, to listen, to trust, and to solve. I think it comes down in this text that we, we've got to have a ministry of the word and we've got to have a ministry of prayer and we've got to have ministries of service and not some overdrawn process of service. 
We don't always have to respond to needs a year out like Avenue Church. We don't always have to formalize all the things that God might be doing among us. I want to let you know, brothers and sisters, we have a mission to fulfill as a church, not a structure to sustain. We have a mission to fulfill Lake Avenue Church, not a structure to sustain. The Bible tells us that God's going to do what God's going to do. His church is going to prevail. The gates of hell won't even come on on the church, the big C church. Praise God. Praise God. We can have a lot of hope in that. But every day in the United States, there are multiple small C churches that close their doors. The dwindle in size and impact. And so while we can have this amazing hope that the the large C church is going to sustain, we ought not be assumptive that our little C church will make it to the end. And if our objective is to just mimic the culture around us and not have serious dialogue and trust one another, if we give up on the ministry of the word, if we, if we believe that this church is about a, the pastor preaching and not the people serving, I don't have a lot of hope for us. That's not what sustained this church. Yes, you've had, we've had amazing pastors. This is a church of us, but I think at this particular season, God needs more of us to say, I'm in. I want to serve wherever you have me. Where are the widows? Let me hold a baby. Let me help park cars. Let me take out the trash. Let me pray. It's not the only time in the, in the scriptures where the, where, where the church had some drama over food. We're going to share a meal together that I think is incredibly connected and illustrative of this whole message. In 1 Corinthians 11, we we read that the church has now grown to a place and that there's this one particular church in Corinth who when it comes time to have communion, they're they're the same issues of culture and power and, and economics are at play. It says that there are some who would actually come early to the meal and drink all the wine and get drunk So by the time everybody else came for communion, there was no wine left. This is why we use juice at Lake Avenue Church. (laughs) You will fire me someday, I know this. But there's this, this, it's part of the issue, you guys. It's just part of the issue. It's part of the issue that that God has given us a way of living and we will, our humanists will show up. We We will take something that is sacred and make it about ourselves which there's this other instruction in the Bible that says before we come to this meal and partake of the body and blood of Jesus, remembering the high cost of our freedom and and the, the head of our family, there's an instruction that says if you have broken relationship with a brother or sister, you gotta clean that up before you come to the table. Now I hardly think that when that was written they could imagine a church building this size crossed over three services with vacation schedules because the likeliness is that there are many conflicts represented in this room, but the person you have conflict with is not in this room. So what do we do? How do we fulfill the Bible? Here's what I'd like you to do. Before you come up for communion today, ask yourself the question, is there anybody who my posture has been off with? Someone I haven't trusted. Someone I haven't listened to. Someone I avoid even how they speak because I find I just don't even want to be around that person. 
Is there somebody you've had a not-so-awesome posture with? And in your pew, seek forgiveness for that person. And then write down on your smartphone or a piece of paper in your brain that this week I'm going to reach out to that person. I'm going to reach out to that person and ask them for their forgiveness.